Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite a guest to talk to us about a heat rock, a record that just burns, baby, burns. And uh-huh. today, we'll be listening together to the instruments of darkness and light by returning back to 1986 to talk about Invisible Silence, the sophomore album by The Art of Noise. Sometime in the spring or summer of 1986, it might even have been around my birthday in August, my dad drove me all the way to Venice, California to drop in at Penny Lane Records, which used to be right next to the famed Venice Boardwalk. In that store, I purchased my first ever album on cassette, Invisible Silence mm. by The Art of Noise. Looking back over 36 years, it seems perhaps an unlikely choice for the Gateway LP that led into my now lifetime of record collecting, but in 86, the album mesmerized me. Mm. First began with hearing the group's cover of Dwayne Eddy's 1959 rock classic, Peter Gunn, on KROQ out here in Los Angeles, and something about the mix between Eddy's growling guitar in Art of Noises, electronic music machinations had me curious enough to drop eight ninety nine at Penny Lane. I didn't know this at the time, but this was Art of Noise 2.0 after the group's original crew split up like EPMD, just minus the reconciliation reunion. <laughs> the version of the group I heard comprised of Ann Dudley, J.J. Jaxalik, and Gary Langham, working their magic behind synths, drum machines, and other electronic music tools of the trade. The end result could be whimsical and maybe just a touch novelty-esque, but also surprisingly moving and infectiously funky. It wasn't hip-hop, but for 1986, it was hip-hop adjacent. And looking back now, I'm almost certain this album primed me for my hip-hop awakening a few years down the road. Breakbeats, backbeat, beat back, and all. Invisible Silence was the album pick of our guest today, Heat Rocks listener Jason Randall Smith, who's been holding us down uh, throughout our whole tenure on the air. Shout out. Today's episode is the first of two episodes with our listeners sharing their personal Heat Rocks with us. Jason, welcome to Heat Rocks. Thank you so much for having me. It's an extraordinary pleasure to be here with you two. Generally, we do a whole long intro, but since we're doing a listener-supported and listener introductory episode. Tell us about yourself, where you're from, what you do, your astrological sign, your placements. <laughs> <laughs> astrological sign would be Scorpio. All right. And uh, I am out here in Mount Vernon, New York. I've Money been earning. a Westchester, yes, sir. Westchester County kid my whole life. Just got obsessed with music and with sound at a very young age. Mm. I'm currently the music director for Bushwick Brooklyn's Bonfire Radio, and I host a show there, which grew out of a podcast of the same name, mm. 
radio BSOTs, BSOTs standing for both sides of the surface, just trying to connect the dots between various genres of music, hip-hop, soul, jazz, funk, and electronic music, and that airs every other Friday night on the uh, station. Most excellent. I like that. Nice. Why this album? Because when you gave us a list of stuff, this instantly jumped out at me because, as I just mentioned, it's the first album I ever bought. And so Art of Noise and Visible Silence has a very, very dear place in my heart. Where does it place mm. in your, your listening history? Invisible Silence is a big one for me. Like you, Oliver, I bought this on cassette. And this album is really, really special to me because I think it was my gateway into the avant-garde and to thinking about the manipulation of sound. And it's kind of crazy that, so you you have the three members, Lengen, Jeselik, and and Ann Dudley, who I just think is a secret weapon Mm. for me. Mm. All three of them were hanging tough with producer Trevor Horn, who was basically well on his way to being a super producer at that point. Horn is the producer on those early Malcolm McLaren records. Mm. So Buffalo Gals, Double Dutch, World's Famous. Duck Rock. Yeah, the whole Duck Rock album. Horn's the producer on, on, on Duck Rock. Gary Langan is the engineer. Mm. And he's got Ann Dudley playing keyboards on stuff. And she's got co-writing credits on a couple of tunes, including Buffalo Gals, including World's Famous. That is definitely her playing piano on World's Famous. Mm. All of this is even before beatbox hits. Beatbox being art of, one of Art of Noise's early hits from their first yeah. album. I mean, and that's, and that's how I would come to know them. I mean... Around here in New York City radio, you can't escape that song. That was my introduction uh, to Art of Noise, uh, Beatbox, and also Moments in Love. But Beatbox more because I saw so many dudes like dance to it, pop lock to it. Right. I saw a prolific crip walk uh, <laughs> on the street to it. It really strikes me, too, how this album and this sound, and this goes back to your point, Jason, about talking about how it was the introduction to avant-garde music, because when I hear this and hearing about all of our stories about how we were introduced to songs like like Beatbox in the, the early part of the 80s, I just think about the, the kind of primordial soup of sounds that were crossing over, especially in New York. If you think about the kind mm-hmm. of uptown meets downtown scene and the ways that comes through in no wave and post-punk music, which mm-hmm. then it has which has its own configurations in places like Los Angeles and Chicago and Detroit as well, mm-hmm. is that you can have something like a beatbox layering over with okay, you know, Malcolm McLaren, as you were saying, with early or late era disco rap mm-hmm. with, you know, the early kind of Run DMC drum machine hip hop that was starting to, mm-hmm. to pop out in the same uh, the same time, and so all of these things are kind of swimming together, and and it may be just this is my nostalgia for the past. I just feel like it kind of organically all worked together simply because radio DJs had the freedom to be able to 
again, go from Art of Noise on one cut to maybe a little bit of Grandmaster Flash in the next track to Blondie in the next one. Sure, whatever. and throw in some craft work because it all was sort, yeah. of, sort yeah. of a part of the same family. Yeah, yeah Invisible Silence and Kraftwerk's Electric Cafe. I was bumping them both heavy in 86. One thing I want to make clear, and Jason, I would love to get your thoughts on this in terms of how you first experienced this album is, mm-hmm. as I mentioned, I picked it up mostly on the strength of hearing Peter Gunn and just really liking that single because I heard it on the radio. But when I picked up the album, I'm not sure if I heard anything else. Maybe I had heard Legs as well, but I certainly had not heard the first track, which is Opus 4, which we'll listen to in just a moment. Uh But just putting myself back into my, what, I would have been 13 or 14 years old, something like that, that intro track would have been unlike anything I would have heard before. And it probably blew my mind then because when I was just listening to this again last night, it still blows my mind. No sun, dust, no sun, 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 no sun, no more, no sun, no no sun, no more, no sun, no no sun, no more. What a way to usher you in to the world of art of noise. You're getting a sense that a transition is taking place. It's not simply about the avant-garde meaning the accessible, but this is a through point to help take us somewhere else. They're not quite there yet, but they're starting to go there. So when Opus 4 comes in with these beautiful repeated vocals that are dancing around each other, and then you just hear these keyboard tones rise up, it's like flower petals opening. Like your world just turns into this dazzling technicolor. It's a prism kind of revolving around and light hitting it, and you're finally seeing the Roy G. Biv effect come out the other side. Hmm. I mean, it's not just an opening, it's a gateway. You put it really poetically, which isn't surprising because the whole song is based on a poem called November, and it's basically Mm. describing it like London weather. So it's a bit of a downer, but this guy was known for, for talking about London. November. I just learned something. <laughs> yeah, Morgan man. Morgan coming facts here. Yeah, that, that's a new one on me. <laughs> that is definitely a new one on me. The other thing I really enjoyed about listening to this album, both then and now, is just the sense of play. And when I was saying earlier about how there's a lot of what to me feels like whimsy on this is yeah. you kind of imagine that the, the, the three folks who, who worked on this just in the studio and they're surrounded by all these different synthesizers and, and other equipment and just getting a sense of what you can do with it. And I remember the first time I sat down with a synthesizer that had a, a vocal setting basically and that you could set the voice onto the keys so that you could play you could play the piano, except instead of hearing piano sounds, you would hear a facsimile, a synthesized human voice. And there's a yep. lot of that on this album. And sometimes, and I'm sure there was a lot more technical work and editing and post-editing that went into it. But on some level, there's something about the feel of, of certain songs in here, especially on a song like Legs, 
where you just kind of, I, the sense I get is that they're just playing with stuff, seeing what sticks to the wall. Yeah, yeah. And that there's not, there wasn't necessarily this ironclad game plan that they went in with. It's just they, they played their way through it. It's not quite Beatbox 2.0. It's, it's, it's something else. They're, they're playing around, they're very much playing around with the sounds of, of, of the time. And just to bring things back to uh, Trevor Horn for a moment, J.J. Jezel had kind of learned the Fairlight sampler inside and out because mm. he was working so closely with Horn. Like you could count the number of people in the UK who actually had a Fairlight sampler and not use all five fingers. And yeah. Trevor Horn was one of them. Yeah. For listeners who are not familiar with the Fairlight, it was one of the first major sampling synthesizers that got studio use. From what I know about it or its history, it was phenomenally expensive. So it wasn't like something that you would find in just any random studio. But because of its capabilities and that there was nothing quite anything like it on the market when I think it first emerged probably around 80 or 81, it mm. ends up on a lot of really pivotal recordings, including, if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure Planet Rock mm. was uh, partially mm -hmm. produced using a Fairlight. For folks who are gear heads you you see the fairlight pop up a lot in that early 80s across the board in different countries because of the fact that it was really there was nothing else like it even if it was going to have a five digit price tag or something astronomical like that i'd love to know who the other four were <laughs> i'd love to know who those other four same besides here. trevor horn yeah jason get that information and get back to us on that so we'll know so we'll i'll, I'll, I'll get those, right on that after this <laughs> shout those consumers out so, Jason, given that you have, like, I think both of us been listening to this album for the first time, perhaps in, in a while, maybe yeah. maybe you actually listen to it all the time, but I am wondering, what do you hear now as opposed to what you heard when you first came across it back in 86? What, what new things perhaps have emerged for you in those intervening 30 plus years? When I go back, I can hear things that are distinctly 80s about this album now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some of the drum machines, certainly. Mm -hmm. Some of the drum machines, and then there are some chord hints mm -hmm. and synth swells. Like, there's a part that keeps coming around within the song Backbeat. You have this really frenetic, breakbeat-style stuff happening that's building up a lot of tension. And then you just hear this crash of a drum pattern and a synth build up, and it's just... I'm brought back to... Films like Chariots of Fire when I hear it. It just yes. sounds so triumphant and motivational. I hate to say it, but now it sounds like a 1984 Olympics commercial. <laughs> <laughs> it does. <laughs> <laughs> for American Express. <laughs> or McDonald's or something, yeah. you know. Keep going, right. you know what I mean? Right. Speaking of 80s, and I wanted to say that one thing that was very 80s and listening back to this album and in prep for the chat 
was Paranomia with with uh, with Max, Max head, Headroom, headroom. Yes. because nothing says eighties. Now listen, <laughs> nothing says eighties like Max Headroom, and it's one of the most eighties sounding songs on this album. Um, and for those that don't know our youths, um, Christian, uh, Max Headroom was, uh, was I mean, the, the people that created that character were way ahead of the curve in terms of the <laughs> artificial intelligence game, right? He was a, he was a, a, a reporter, I think. His alter ego was, was Max Headroom. I think his name was, might have been Edison or something like that. I think so. And uh, he was snarky. He was anti-media, which is crazy because he was a reporter. But he showed up in everything, like everything 80s. Go, and, you know, Max Back to Head- the future, right? Yo, Max Headroom t-shirts, MTV. So, yo, that let's, took me back um, to my... Let's not, forget, let's not forget the new Coke commercials. <laughs> and when you first tried Coke, I bet you said, uh-uh, not for me. But hey, let's not let first impressions swim. And let's try Coke, Coke, Coke again, shall we? Because once you've acquired that new wave taste, you're going to want to try it again, again, and again. Coke's delightful. The second. Catchy, isn't it? Catch the wave. Coke. And, and Max Headroom, Headroom had his own TV series, so he was big in the 80s. Yeah. And to your earlier point, Morgan, about just the the particular time capsule that listening to the production on that song opens the, the way it works that the synthesized vocals, it takes me to 1985's Oh yeah. By yellow, which Mm -hmm. you've heard in 30 different movies in the (laughs) eighties. I wanted to ask you about instruments of darkness. Oh. Um, two things. One, had you heard the Prodigy remix? I have. How do you feel about it? Oh, the Prodigy remix is insane. But see, that's the thing about me. I think, you know, it was works like this that got me ready for stuff like the Prodigy. Yeah. My love for the Prodigy goes back to my first rave ever. I sure. mean, that's... So, you know, me dancing on top of a basement speaker at one thirty in the morning to Prodigy's Rough in the Jungle Business. Like, that's that's how I got indoctrinated. So... We got to see pictures of he- that, Jason. Unfortunately, no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just as I thought. I mean, the video's fire. It just gets you hyped up. And what I like about this song, besides their other little uh, nod to, to poetry, because Instruments of Darkness is from Macbeth, um, that mm. they sample so many leaders at the end of the... the, the all of the words are from, from, from leaders. One, I think, is the president of, of South Africa. There's somebody else who's like a labor party. So it's, it's, it's very, very layered. It's not just a jam. There's stuff that's being said. I think the cover says something like "We're all one people." So it's not my favorite song, but the but the Prodigy remix took it over the edge for me because it got me super duper hyped. It's it was the reinterpretation that I never knew I needed. Man, absolutely incredible. I mean, that against the the original version of just these two wonderful juxtapositions, and I think "Instruments of Darkness," while not necessarily the greatest song on the album, it's it has its place as this wonderful halfway point 
you know, they're not necessarily chopping that up in the same way that in that same hyperactive sense. Sure. That they have their, you know, their stock sounds, you know, you can always go to certain things. Dum, 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 oh, 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 oh. It's all over the place. You know, had they run that course of novelty long enough, people will be uttering them in the same breath as the singing dogs doing their own version of Jingle Bells. So thankfully, they didn't push it that far. Right, right. But, you know, I think they play just enough to have fun, but they also know when to reel it in. And Instruments of Darkness is a great example of restraint by the group because they understand that the vocal pieces that they have are so strong on their own that they just want to put it within a sonic atmosphere Mm. that supports the strength of those voices and what those voices are saying. And also, I could be wrong just because my memory's not great, but I don't know if I had an idea of apartheid before this song. Right, exactly, mm. right, and right. For, a song, for an album that has not necessarily light in terms of superficial moments, but this was a definitely shift in tone. And just right. in a lot of ways, it does feel a little bit like an aberration on compared to the rest of the album, not in a bad way. But it's sort of like it's like the message song they wanted to put in here. Exactly that you that coming out of everything else, both before and after it, you weren't expecting it. No. We will be back with more of a conversation with Heat Rock's listener. Jason Randall Smith after a brief word from some of our sibling Max Fun podcasts. Keep it locked. We are the host of My Brother, My Brother, and Me, and now, nearly 10 years into our podcast, the secret can be revealed. All the clues are in place, and the world's greatest treasure hunt can now begin. Embedded in each episode of My Brother, My Brother, and Me is a micro-clue that will lead you to 14 precious gemstones all around this big, beautiful blue world of ours. So start coming through the episodes. Uh, let's say starting at episode 101 on. Yeah, the early episodes are pretty problematic, so there's no clues in those episodes no no not at all the better ones the good ones clues ahoy listen to every episode repeatedly in sequence laugh if you must but mainly get all the great clues my brother my brother me it's an advice show kind of but a treasure hunt mainly anywhere you find podcasts or treasure maps my brother my brother me the hunt is on Hi, I'm Allie Gertz. And I'm Julia Prescott. And we host Round Springfield. Round Springfield is a new Simpsons podcast that is Simpsons adjacent. Mm -hmm. Um, In its topic, we talk to Simpsons writers, directors, voiceover actors, you name it, about non-Simpsons things that they've done. Because, surprise, they're all extremely talented. Absolutely. For example, David X. Cohen worked on The Simpsons, but then created a little show called Futurama. Mm -hmm. That's our very first episode. So tune in for stuff like that with Yardley Smith, with Tim Long, with different writers and voice actors. It's going to be so much fun. And we are every other week on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back on Heat Rocks talking art of noise with our listener, Jason Randall Smith. Jason, as a longtime listener, you know that you had to prepare 
an answer to what I'm about to ask, which is, <laughs> what to you is the fire track off this album? Indeed. Camilla. Yeah. Oh. oh. Yes, a man after my own heart. Camilla. Camilla, the old, old story. Yes. floating mm. you're floating the entire time you're anchored by the bongos the bass the hushed synth tones that sound like breaths and slightly tuned so that they can hit the 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 notes that they need to hit but everything around it is just it's exquisite To me, it's the most placement ready. <laughs> uh, and so I cannot wait to pitch that one. Got to be careful about where and how I use it. Mm. And it's also one of my favorite, it has my favorite moment in the album. And that's the that's the place that, that Christian just played because when it changes up. And I'd say the difference between that and moments of love is is, is Camilla feels more singular and more intimate than, than uh, moments of love. It is make out mixtape worthy. And it, it, right. it has been from the moment that it hit. Right. Interestingly enough... Since we do have a music supervisor among us, back in 1987, there was a movie called Cracked Up that aired on ABC. It was all about this high school track scar that got addicted to crack cocaine. Yo. <laughs> Ed Asner played the boy's father. I remember that. Now, wait. I'm in, I'm in ninth grade. I've, maybe it was my health class, and they showed this on the TV and the VCR, the whole bit, and it gets to the part in a movie where that high school kid who eventually gets addicted and his boy go out, they meet an older m woman played by Kim Delaney, by the way. Somehow or another, they ended up back at her place. She comes out with this silver plate with the pipe on it and the substance, and Camilla starts playing <laughs> Oh, I man. kid you not. Showtime, guys. Whatever. Ladies first. <laughs> what do you say, kid? Want to take a trip to Bolivia? Yo. I kid you Wait, not. Hold up. What about the song says crack? Ex Heroin, maybe, <laughs> but crack? I'm saying. And I'm like, now, how can I top that? The, the bar's so low, though. I guess I could place it against anything to just. I hope I can remake this memory for you, though, so that when wait, you see, wait, when you see it gets, whatever it is. It, it, it gets better. Every time that this kid goes back to use. You hear that little bit of boister every time. That's terrible. Every time he goes back to hit the pipe, boister. <laughs> Honest to God. Boister. 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 
in '86, my fire track would have been Peter Gunn because that was that was the jam that got me into oh, yes. this album. Yes, mm. but in 2020, and it's it's interesting, Jason, because really the two songs I was choosing between Camilla was it came close, but I ended up settling with for my fire track. It's Eye of the Needle. Oh, wee. And yes. they're very similar songs. They're the two ballads. They're so mellow. And Eye of the Needle in particular strikes me as sort of the greatest Japanese video game music soundtrack that w- that never existed. Mm. It just kind of has that <laughs> feel. Oh, yes. I think it's definitely the xylophone that really does it. But again, you got to remember where this is sequenced in the album. You have, you got... Opus four to open with, that then mm-hmm. goes into Paranomia, and then I have it. Which so you go from this this weird vocal overlap repetition thing that poem is is uh, Morgan was letting us know about. Then you go into a very up tempo, super eighties dance jam, and then <laughs> I have the needle comes on at track number three. And at this point, mm-hmm. I'm just getting whiplash as a listener. It's definitely one of my favorites. It's a lounge lizard scene if the painting were done by Salvador Dali. Mm. <laughs> I, mm. I mean, it's it's this beautiful, delicate balance between novelty and subtlety. Yes. The the percussion is like table tennis. All of it. It's yeah, it's it's one of my all-time favorite pieces from yeah. them. Morgan, what's your fire track off of here? It was Camilla. It was Camilla's mm-hmm. one? Uh-huh, Camilla. And the second mm-hmm. one was going to be Eye of a Needle so, for all the things that you just said. Yeah. But I just think that um, I, I think that they're both pretty sexy. I like that we all went with the mellow, the yep. mellow tracks on here. Yep. This all set, my favorite moment, and Morgan, you shared your favorite moment a moment ago. For me, it does come back to Peter Gunn. And it's it's basically what I now could describe as the bridge or even as a breakbeat, but I didn't have any of that musical language back in 86 when I heard it. But it's the mm. moment in which the guitar comes back just by itself and then they gradually layer in the percussion. I forgot to mention I was really into this song too because I'm pretty sure this was the theme on Spy Hunter, the video game. And so that's where yes. I know yes. version of this. So, but yeah, that's my favorite moment. Jason, do you have a favorite moment on here? Slip of the tongue. It's just a minute and a half, but that song in its entirety, mm. right between legs and backbeat, is probably my favorite moment. Like the the fact that you don't really get time to breathe as legs ends and slip of the tongue begins. Mm. They shout out legs twice and you're right in it. The crazy thing about slip of the tongue is, you know, after the euphoria of legs, 
you're kind of in this swirling, foreboding place. Slip of the tongue is definitely my, represents my favorite moment. So industrial. Man. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. It's, it's, it's almost industrial in nature. Jason, what song would you play for someone who had never heard this album? What do you think would should be the proper introduction for them to just absorb Art of Noise or in particular Invisible Silence? Hmm. I Have a Needle is good because, you know, it's probably negotiates their silliness and their substance the best. That's a mm-hmm. great description. I think that's exactly right. The one thing that also both of you had mentioned the similarities between this song, Camilla, and Moments of Love, and Moments of Love was from the the previous Art of Noise album when they had their original crew. It occurred to me that if I had heard Invisible Silence having already been a fan of their first album, Who's Afraid of Art of Noise, I don't know how I would have taken this. And I was Mm -hmm. reading some of the comments made, and I can't remember which of the original members who ended up being very disgruntled with the direction the group went in after this person left. But he basically suggested that they just turned into a novelty group effectively. Mm. And Mm. while I don't agree with that, it is notable that because this was my introduction to the group, this was the sound. And then when I go back backwards and listen to the earlier stuff, a song like Moments of Love, you can make, I think, the connection between the style and sound of it with a song like Camilla or Eye of the Needle. Moments of Love does not feel diminished to me in any way simply because I listened to it after the fact, but I wonder if I'd flipped it around how I I might feel in the other direction. It's not that I dislike it. I just wouldn't really turn to it. I would turn to Invisible Silence first because this is the album that I know. It's the album that that lured me in. I kind of feel for, for other people who would have been fans of Who's Afraid of Art of Noise first, I wonder how they would have approached this album and the similarities and differences between those two LPs. Yeah. And and hmm. there were some parts of of uh, moments of love that ended up just being sort of kitschy because it showed up in a lot of places. There was like a, a commercial for a best a best hits album, and 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 moments of love was always in it. Right. So it lo- it lost its value, which made in prep for this chat, listening to this album again, listening to Camilla seem a lot more sophisticated. Mm. Although there are similarities, Camilla seemed more sophisticated because right. art of noise had become moments in love had become this thing. That was just like this slow burn, right? Showed up on a commercial type but, of jam. See, you you didn't see cracked up in your your. High this is true. This is true. Class, which Yo. might have changed your opinion about. This Camilla, is true. This is true. Shout out to cracked up. Shout out to Ed. <laughs> <laughs> and whoever baby was with the silver platter. Well, I, I just Kim oh, I'm, if, I'm assuming if Ed Asner was the dad, I'm assuming the kid was white, and I'm just thank you ABC for yeah for subverting. Racist expectations. That's right. You know. It, yeah, they 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 really do. They they really do need to be shouted out for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, finish this sentence for me, Jason. Uh, Art of noise, invisible silences for people who are looking to get more experimental, but 
they need an accessible way to get there. Mm. Oh, that's good. That's good. Jason, if you had to describe invisible silence in three words, and you can't use in or visible or silence <laughs> or art or of or noise. Or cracked uh-oh. up. Or cracked up. What would, you, what would you go with? Hmm. Bordering on brilliance. Bordering on brilliance. I like that. So you don't think it actually just is straight up brilliance? It doesn't cross the border into brilliance? It's just kind of kind of on the sides, hoping to get past immigration control? <laughs> it's Indeed. on its way there. And that's why I call this a transition record. Yeah. Because the, the, the albums that come after this, In No Sense, Nonsense, and Below the Waist, by the time they get to a Below the Waist, they're in a modern classical place. Yeah, yeah. The groove is still there. Because if anything, I think, defines the art of noise, it's, you know, it's, it's a celebration of the groove. Right. But also, it's about the experiments that are happening around that groove. And that's why I think Ann Dudley is so important. Mm. You know, by the time Below the Waste happens, Gary Langan's out of the picture. So it's just Ann and JJ. And Ann is so accomplished as a pianist and a composer that it continues to show up more and more in the music. Mm. So Invisible Silence is this, is, is this gateway point between the, the humor and the sometimes novelty in the play, mm. but they're, 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 they're working towards a more multidimensional aspect mm. of who they are and who they're becoming. Damn, this is such a thoughtful set of remarks that we have from our guests today. Last thing here is for listeners who really enjoyed today's uh, pick in terms of invisible silence, what should be next on their listening list? How about you, Morgan? You want to start us off? Man, in, in, in thinking about this, there were so many places that I wanted to go. What I settled on was the 1981 album from Yellow Magic Orchestra mm. called Technodelic. Mm. Um, the band was started in Tokyo in 1978. Uh, some of the early material was supposed to be satire, sort of uh, they're, they're joking about cocktail lounges and exotica music. And it ended up being this, a blend of electronica, and vocals and very cool music. So if you had to, they had several albums, but this is one of my favorites. And if you had to start the album with a song, do stairs or soul music and keep going. It is delicious. For me, I'm going to dip back to something I mentioned earlier, which is I really think about a lot of the Moog albums, M-O-O-G, which was a groundbreaking synthesizer from the late 1960s. And you could certainly do worse than going with Jean-Jacques Perry's uh, Moog Indigo from 1970 and JJP, as I call him because I'm close to him like that. He was one of the giants of French electronic <laughs> music and rose to fame in the 60s, uh, largely on the on the basis of his ex- experimental electronic pop LPs. Moog Indigo would become, as far as I know, probably his biggest hit for a variety of reasons. But I think everyone's, in my generation, their introduction to this album came through Gangstar 
because they sampled EVA, which is off of this album. And EVA is just, regardless of how many times it's been sampled, and it's been sampled a lot, but EVA just stands alone on its own as being just a fire track using the Moog. And I just want to add one more thing because Oliver mentioned samples that Jay Dilla sampled uh, Yellow Magic Orchestra's uh, rap phenomenon for his song Go Get Him. And they were heavy influence not only on Jay Dilla, but also they were covered by Michael Jackson. And also uh, they had a lot to do with, with Detroit and the sound of Detroit and techno. A lot of, a lot of DJs influenced by them. Jason, what would be your recommendation for the next listen after Invisible Silence? In keeping with the art of noise, I really would like to recommend the Ambient Collection, which mm. came out in 1990. You get a couple of songs from Invisible Silence. You get Camilla and Eye of a Needle and Opus 4, as well as a few songs from the two albums after that. It also closes out with this beautiful piece called Art of Love, which actually takes little bits from various different songs, including Camilla. It is lovingly compiled by Youth, who was a part of Killing Joke and worked closely with Alex Patterson as the uh, during his time in The Orb. So it all has that chill out essential vibe to it everything just flows seamlessly together that will do it for this episode of heat rocks with our listener friend jason randall smith thank you so much for joining us today where can people find out more about you and the stuff you're working on you can find me on twitter at jason r smith 73 you can also find the uh the show radio bsots on uh, twitter and instagram bsots b-s-o-t-s and hey if you ever need some guest djs for that show give me and morgan a holler <laughs> for oh, sure most, de- mo- most definitely i am uh, seeing as how i am a worldwide fm devotee i i've been listening to those sets for art form radio so i definitely got to give oliver a shout indeed i've uh, been 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 listening to some of those uh absolutely wonderful sets out of the art form studio from you thank you so much top notch five star indeed indeed and thank you so much for, for always shouting us out and always holding us down we do see your tweets so we do appreciate the tweezies and the retweezies gotta do it whenever you know on social media, we tend to have a preoccupation with hot takes rather than deep dives. Indeed. So it's always nice when people take the time to dive deep. And you two have been diving deep ever since you brought Joy in to talk about Betty Davis. And Ooh. I thank you for it. Please keep it coming. Thank you so much. Appreciate you, man. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong, and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself and Morgan, alongside Christian Duenas, who also edits, engineers, and does the booking for our shows. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and our executive producer is Jesse Ford. 
We are part of the Maximum Fun family, taping every week live in their studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.